0: All right. Um, I want to follow on some of the theme that's um, been flowing for the last few weeks, particularly with Joel and with with Chris, because I think it's extremely important um, that we nail our colors to the mast on some things and um, make clear where we're heading with our our thoughts. Um, Also, it was interesting, again, I don't I don't interact with the guys who do the music but just from the way we started um, kind of is somewhere where I want to start tonight with you. Um, also want to say I was uh, moved but also grateful for the number of people I met while I was away in, in, um, in Texas and in Salt Lake City who actually their main source of teaching is the teaching of this house and um, I found that very honouring and and a real blessing. So we have some responsibility to keep going on the journey that we're on. Um, now, I've, I've tried, um, particularly over the last 11 years, to talk to you fairly honestly and openly about my life. I don't mean to be going on as the saying goes like a two-bob watch, or that that's the only issue of my life. However, um, as I said to you at the beginning, I think it's extremely important that we're honest about our own lives, particularly if we have the role of teaching people because um, you have to be able to see the real me, not the professional me um, not not the the me who has a job of being a pastor. you have to see anth Chapman as much as as much as is possible, and i don't like um, yeah I'll say it like it is I, I don't like preachers who I know are not being honest about their own lives while while trying to teach others. Um, and so I, I want to base what I have to say a little bit in that, because um, love me or loathe me, uh, who I have become is very much um, a product of the things that have happened to me over the last 11 years. And uh, some of you love me for it. I have found out to my sadness that some people loathe me for it, but uh, I am who I am. and. We'll try and be truthful to, to what it is that we have received. Because I found myself in, in a situation 11 years ago that was kind of forced upon me. Um, I, di- I didn't choose for it to happen and I honestly didn't see it coming. Uh, I'm sure I contributed some aspects into the creation of that situation. Um, But what I need you to know is that that created a crisis in me 11 years ago, and in some ways, that crisis is still yet to be resolved. Um, I don't know if it defined who I was, but it has certainly been the launching point into defining who I am today and who I am becoming. There were two things that specifically happened in that process that's been going on. One is that it forced me, and rightly so, into a level of self-examination, particularly regarding my faith, my Christianity, um, and my belief in God, um, that I still struggle with, not because I struggle with the existence of God or the love of God or the kindness of God, but some of the things that I thought I knew didn't really help me Uh, in the reality of what I was going through, because they were academic and not authentic. Now, now I authentically set my heart to believe them, right? But they were not authentic in me, because there are some things that even though we set our heart to believe it, until some stuff happens to test that, we don't really know whether whether what we have academically believed has become a reality in our own heart and our own life. And uh, I don't condemn the fact that that many of us, because I was this way for many years, have an academic Christianity, an academic faith in God, an academic uh, discipleship of Jesus. Again, I'm saying I I don't mean to condemn, nor do I wish to condemn for that, because I lived there for many years. However... Um, if we avoid the challenge to the authenticity of that belief, then we never find out, not whether what we believed is real, but whether we're real in what we believed. And so the whole issue of what I want to talk to you about tonight is being real in what we believe. Now, so one of, one of the things that, that was forced upon me was this level of self-examination um, and, and some things I have resolved, some things I'm still, I still wrestle through. When I read David's Psalms, I, I find David expresses beautifully where I am at times. Sometimes I'm mad at God, sometimes I'm glad at God. But always, always knowing that his love never changes and he is always faithful. And that the wonderful thing I learned in that is no matter how much I rail at him in the honesty of my own disappointments and disillusionments, And in the betrayals that I've experienced, he just looks on me and smiles. And uh, what I love about God as well, he he lets you get things off your chest. And then he doesn't judge you on what you said or how you said it or the language that you used when you said it. He's just there to love the heart that's crying out for answers. We're calling upon him, even sometimes when we're railing against him. So in in my search for the authentic self... Uh, and whether I could call myself an authentic follower of Jesus um, I have not much liked most of what I've seen uh, it's important for me to say that to you because uh, I, have, I have been through the process in life of where people look at people like me up here and say well it's alright for you I'm a human being, I'm flesh Okay, I feel pain just like you feel pain I feel hurt like you feel hurt have to deal with things like you have to deal with. And um, I, one of the greatest struggles I've had in this is continuing to be, for me to be at peace with myself. I know God is at peace with me. And uh, in the context of me understanding grace and the gift of righteousness, I'm at peace with God, but I'm very often not at peace with myself because I still haven't resolved sometimes how to deal with with what it is that I see in myself. Now, uh, if you think, well, how can you do that? Do you remember Adam and Eve? They couldn't resolve what they saw in themselves. They called it nakedness. They couldn't resolve that and uh, needed some very special help from God so that they could deal with how they felt about themselves. And you may be there today, but God is gracious and God is good and God is kind. So the wonderful thing is that, that God's salvation in Jesus, which is his righteousness given to us, Um, he's not dependent even on how much we like ourselves, okay, that becomes a personal journey of learning to see ourselves as God sees us and uh, allowing his version of our story to be the one that we buy into, too often we revert to our version of our story and we all like a little bit of self-pity and We all like the room to gripe, so some things we leave in place in our life to give us the excuse to do that, which is not a good idea, it never works, it doesn't solve anything. We only finish up hurting ourselves, but it kind of feels good at the time, doesn't it? We've got to stop it. So that that was the the first thing. The the second thing um, that became important to me through this journey is in this ongoing experience, It forced upon me um, an examination, not so much of the reality and existence of God, but the authenticity of the things that I'd been taught regarding his person, character and nature. The question and the daring to ask the question, was any of this true, was some of this true, was all of this true? Is the foundation of this true but some of the other stuff that we built upon that foundation not true? These are the kind of battles that I that I have gone through. Now, um, I do want to say this, that not to have those battles is very dangerous because what happens without those battles is we construct a version of God to which we add uh, little pieces as we go along life's journey or by our own understanding until until we've actually constructed a God who's been constructed more like Lego bricks. You know, we, we, we made him into something because nobody ever stopped to think, are we just really building with Lego bricks? Is this, is this at the end of the day? Have we created a toy God, an unreal God? Have we modeled a God that, that may not resemble the true God? Now, you may have never had these thoughts and... In some ways, I, I, I would pray you would be spared some of these thoughts because they're very difficult to deal with. But on the other hand, I do know that without those thoughts, you will never have the openness of heart to perhaps experience who I believe God really is. So so, so this question of... of like I say, not the existence of God. I've never doubted the existence of God at all. That's never been an issue, but the authenticity of what I've been taught about its person, character, and nature. Um, Again, as I said about the first point, I believe there are many who authentically believe in God, but whether the being they present is authentically God is another matter. Let me say that again, because it's very important. I believe there are many who authentically believe in God. But whether the being they present is authentically God is another matter altogether. Now, the wonderful thing about God, he's so loving, he's so kind, he's so gracious, you don't have to get it all right to be a beneficiary of his kindness and his goodness and his love. And and that's one thing I've I've discovered about God, which is amazing. You can do the wrong things and get it all right, and you can do the right things and get it all wrong. You only have to read the Gospels without a, 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 a distorted lens to see that. There's a bunch of people getting it all right and we're getting it all wrong, and there are a bunch of people who are getting it all wrong and we're getting it all right. So, so, so the issue is, is, the being that we present is it authentically God. Um... Although the words spoken present a God sensitive to the state of humanity, this is what happens and and what I've tended to discover. Within that gospel, the words spoken present a God sensitive to the state of humanity, but in reality, much of what is proposed presents a God who cares little about the pain and hardships we endure, but obsesses over being honoured, glorified, worshipped and adored. Now you may not see that but if, if, you, if you step outside of church religious environment you will find that what we have in the church tended to convey to those not part of the church is that God this God we talk about is obsessed over being honoured glorified, worshipped and adored like that's what he spends all his time trying to get us to do. When the truth is I believe pretty much all of God's time is focused on the pain and the hardships that we endure as human beings. See, there are scriptures that, in the book of Hebrews, that say that, that because Jesus was a man, he, he, he was able to sympathize with our weaknesses. That he was tempted in all points like we are, but, but didn't break under the strain and didn't fall. All those scriptures are there, which are wonderful, but what I'm proposing to you is that although those scriptures are there and those scriptures are quoted, actually behind all that, the God who is often presented is obsessed about being honoured, glorified, worshipped and adored as far as, as far as our message seems to present it. I, I like... And I think it's more than idea, but I'll call it an idea. I like the idea of a God who cares deeply about the pain and the hardships that we endure. Who interrupts. I don't believe in a God who intervenes, because that would suggest he disregards things and he takes over, and I don't believe in that, but I do believe in a God who interrupts. You ever had somebody interrupt a conversation? when you were waxing lyrical and somebody interrupted you to bring in a different thought. I, I believe God interrupts in our lives, but when I talk about pain and hardships, uh, we, get, we get concepts of what we mean by pain and hardships, like people who suffer, or people who are depressed, or people who are addicted, but for example, what if, I'm gonna get real specific here, what if you have a non-Christian girlfriend? Who you love and you, you desperately want that relationship to go somewhere do you, think, do you think God looks on that and becomes obsessed with the fact that this, this situation doesn't honour me, glorify me worship me or adore me or, or do you think he, he appreciates the pain of human suffering that says I'm in love, I'm in a difficult situation I don't know what to do I'm of you think that God would be dismissive of that? Well, if he's obsessed with, with himself, then he will be. But, but if his obsession is not with himself, but actually with the people who he created, then actually he's going to be extremely compassionate and kind. Now, that doesn't mean the decisions we're about to make are good decisions. We we, we confuse the kindness of God in our lives with every decision being a good decision. But you see, the wonderful thing about the Bible is it's all about people who made bad decisions. Being touched by God and brought to a place where they could be schooled into making better decisions and even good decisions that were actually life decisions and realizing that as they connected with the life of God that all things are possible to him who believes. So that's not a statement that it's just right to do whatever we want to do, whatever, but the Apostle Paul says all things are permissible but not everything's beneficial. But it is a statement that God is not so obsessed about who he is that he doesn't feel our pain and suffering in situations like that. Or someone struggling with their sexuality. I, I, I struggled with this one um, for years. And it, it, it's not an issue of whether I think Uh, a lifestyle is God's best or not God's best. It's the issue of where does God's heart go? Does God's heart feel the pain and the suffering of someone I've never struggled with that? I mean, I'm, I'm heterosexual to the core. But does God's heart feel the pain and the struggle of someone who has that pain? And can you feel the pain and the struggle of someone who's in that position? Or do we just dismissively, because that's not us, feel no sensitivity and no compassion because we have a God who's just obsessed with being honoured, glorified, worshipped and adored? Now I think God wants to be honoured, glorified, worshipped and adored, but I think he wants that to come out of our recognition of his sensitivity to our hardships and our struggles. Guys, um, I don't know if there's anybody in here who deliberately made the decision that you were going to be uh, at at least compete for the title of wickedest person of the day. I think with all of us, even, even when we've done some very, very stupid things and some things that honestly don't reflect the creation of God and the heart of God and the nature of God, I don't think we really, any of us, I don't think in here I know, set out to be that. That would be a different story to me. But we all somehow find ourselves as life touches us and we interact with life with pain and hardship in different areas. What what I need you to know tonight is that that God is compassionate to your pain and he's compassionate to your hardship and it's not my job to judge whether I think your pain and hardship is an acceptable pain and hardship or whether it's not an acceptable pain. It's a pain and a hardship to you. And I pray tonight that in your pain and your hardship you'll know the grace of God and the love of God and the kindness of God and know that God is obsessing over you That's what he's obsessing over. How can we work this out? I want you to know that he's interrupting the conversation of your life and saying, but have you thought about this? What about that? And if you listen, something will change. Uh, There's a guy called George MacDonald who's a very interesting guy. He He was a big influence on Lewis Carroll that the novelist and also a big influence. In fact, um, C.S. Lewis said that George MacDonald was the primary influence on his, the development of his understanding of theology and of God. George MacDonald was also a, a writer, poet, and writer, novelist, and also a, a preacher, a minister. He, lit, he was born in 1824, died in 1905. But one of the great things George MacDonald said was this, he said, Good souls will one day be horrified at the things they now believe of God. Such must take courage to forsake the false in any shape, to deny their old selves in the most seemingly sacred of prejudices. I love that. We have some sacred prejudices. And follow Jesus, not as he is presented in the tradition of elders, but as he is presented by himself, his apostles, and the spirit of truth. And so I wanna bring you to a little story just for a few minutes tonight, just just to challenge your thinking. In Genesis chapter 22, there's this very interesting story of this patriarch of Israel and important personality of the Bible known as Abraham. Here's what it says, just two verses. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So God, apparently... Uh, don't switch off because I said apparently, okay, I, I'm wanting you just, I told Abraham that the child that he had waited for who was born to him when he was 100 years old and when his wife Sarah was 90 and she couldn't have babies, this was a child of promise, this, this, this was this, Abraham's whole world and his all really at this time appreciation of God in his life rested on this, this child. And God says, take him up a mountain and kill him. I I can only imagine with difficulty the thoughts that, that really must have been plaguing Abraham's mind as he dutifully trudged up Mount Moriah fully intent on slitting his son's throat and burning his body in obedience to God's will. Chris talked to you uh, last week about this lovely story of Noah, the animals went in two by two. But none of us think about all the dead bodies that were floating around the boat. White and asphyxiated as a result of the flood. It's all become a, a story like we paint it on kids' bedroom walls, but we don't paint the bodies floating around. We miss somewhere in there some of the importance of what was happening. Now, I think Chris did a great job of bringing that to our attention. That's not for me to talk about today, but I'm bringing you a similar thing. Do you understand what this means? He was going to take his son up this mountain, put him on an altar made of stone, and slit his throat and wait until his son bled out. And then he was going to burn him. Now, did God tell him to do that? I think God did, but I'm going to explain what I think about that. But, but I'm going to question why it is that somehow in the, in the fantasy of the story, we miss the reality of the experience. And the danger is, we read the Bible through eyes that fantasize the story and miss the reality of the experience. We we do that all the time. And so somehow we then invent a God who maybe is the creation of our own imagination and, and not the God who was really then. And maybe we just missed the point. Now, I know that the writer of Hebrews, in in Hebrews 11 verse 17 through 19, tells us that Abraham believed that God had the power to raise his son back to life again. How many of you know that's quite easy for the writer to say centuries after the event, especially when he's not the one carrying the knife or the command to snuff out his child's life? Or Abraham believed God. Did he believe God would give him back his son? Now, I'm not questioning the spirit of the writer of Hebrews, I'm not questioning what he wrote, but what I'm trying to get you to understand, it's very easy, removed from the situation, to create a scenario that takes us away from maybe what the real point of the issue was. What sort of deity must Abraham have been imagining his God to be? Come I want you to think? So Abraham has to think, this is the kind of thing that God does. He asks fathers to slit the son's throat and to burn him. Now, I want you to remember something. Abraham had no book spelling out God's character and nature. Abraham didn't have a Bible. Oh brother, you should look at the word. Let's get into the word, see what the word has to say. Abraham didn't have the word. He had nothing to read to try and tell him what God was like, what the nature of God was. There was some oral tradition, but Abraham had really nothing other than a voice that he heard on the wind. When he heard God speak to him, he couldn't. See, how does God speak to people in scripture? Could he? So, so here's Abraham and he's, he's, he's hearing this voice on the wind. Go to a land that I'll show you. I'll make you a great people. And, and he had the odd inexplicable encounter with the divine. But this is all Abraham's got to go on. He's got no reference point. And so now this divine being, this deity, says slit your son's throat and burn him on an altar. What kind of deity is that? Have you you wondered when you read this scripture, if you've ever read it, and if you haven't, go and read it. Why didn't God's demands seem either surprising or unreasonable to Abraham? Why would the one who just prior to this, this is Abraham, negotiated with God over the saving of lives in a city full of people about to become the victims of their own violent ways, why wouldn't he do the same thing over his beloved son? Because he'd just done that over two towns called Sodom and Gomorrah. Why didn't he start negotiating then? and say, okay, God, well, here's the deal. What if... See, what you've got to appreciate is that Abraham was raised in an environment where the gods had no problem with taking the life of your loved one to satisfy their own needs. Abraham's raised in the culture of Ur of the days. Jewish tradition holds that his father was an idol maker. Therefore, Abraham was very familiar with the worship of other gods. The primary god worshipped in Ur of the Chaldees was the moon god. And Abraham would have been extremely familiar with the duplicity of gods and also the exposure to gods who felt quite content to require human sacrifice. What I'm trying to get through to you is it was not abnormal in Abraham's experience of deity for a deity to demand that your child be taken and sacrificed to please the deity. Okay. So Abraham doesn't argue with this voice. He doesn't argue with what God says. Because as far as he's concerned at this time, that's what God's do. That's what God's demand Now, the noteworthy thing here is that this man, Abraham, was prepared to believe and act upon his belief to an amazing degree. I admire him because he believed that God had spoken to him and he was prepared to act on that belief, even if it would cost him his own son. That's amazing. That says something about Abraham's faith and Abraham's belief. But it doesn't say a lot about God yet. See, the tragedy here is that God, the Abba, the daddy the Father, the Creator, was perceived as being on equal level with the pagan gods of antiquity. And if there's one thing that rubs me up the wrong way, it's a presentation of God that does not differ from the presentation of any other gods who exist in any other religion at any point in history. Now, some of you will say, no, we don't do that. Our God is great. Okay, so, if your God rewards good and punishes bad... Is no different to the gods of Greece, Rome, Egypt. If you're rewarded for doing good, if you're punished for doing bad, if the basic understanding of your God is that your God is angry and his anger must be appeased, and only when his anger is appeased will he look on you with kindness, then your God is no different to a Greek God, a Roman God, an Egyptian God, a Hindu God. He's no different. It's time to get honest. So what defines the Abba of Jesus, what defines the Father, the Creator, is not that he's bigger than the other gods or better than the other gods or in more places than the other gods or knows more than the other gods or can do more than the other gods. It's the fact that he's different to the other gods, which means, in our understanding, is an ungodlike God. God. Now this is Abraham's battle because his perception of God is that this god is like the moon god or is like or is like any of the gods that demand sacrifice in order to make them pleased so that they will bless you and abraham stuck here like some of you still are it would appear that while god was testing the faithfulness of abraham though he was at the same time dismantling abraham's remaining perceptions of god <laughs> see this really was all from the beginning while testing Abraham's faithfulness which the verse says that God tested Abraham so we accept that but God was testing Abraham for the reason really of making an opportunity to dismantle Abraham's remaining perceptions of pagan gods. God's about to show that he's different. Lovely. How? How? Well, what happens is Abraham goes all the way up the mountain with his son. His son's a little confused because he says, Look, Dad, here's, we've got wood for the fire and you've got a knife and you've got the means to start the fire and we're all going up there, but, but where's the sacrifice? And it says the two of them walked on. I wouldn't tell Joel either. They're like, you know, wait till you get there. Duff him on the back of the head on there. So these two figures are walking up there and Abraham, to Abraham, and I want you to catch this, to Abraham, Ian, all integrity of heart, believes that that is what a God would require of him and that if he does not comply with what the God requires of him, then the blessing on his life will stop. He believes that with all his heart and I applaud Abraham for his belief just as I applaud many people for the integrity of their belief but the question was, was Abraham's belief misplaced not because he was faithful to what God had said to him but because he had an image of God that was not what he had decided it was and so he goes up there and he takes his son and he says son this is the deal puts his son on the altar I I can't that blows my mind because Isaac himself would have to have cooperated with his hundred hundred and what twelve sixteen year old father and he's on the altar and Abraham's about to do the job he's about to slit the boy's throat and it says and an angel appeared and said Stop! Don't do it. Drop the knife. And um, at that moment, Abraham looks and he sees he sees a ram, a male a male sheep caught in a thicket, a thorn thicket by its horns. And. Um, God says don't do it, he says I know that you're faithful. I've seen in the test of whether you are faithful, I've seen, but now what I need to do in that is dismantle what you thought about me. Did you honestly think that I would demand of you the sacrifice of your son to please me so that I would bless you? And so Abraham, cut a long story short, is able to take this ram from the thicket and, and the ram, bless its heart, becomes the sacrifice in the place of Isaac. Lots of pictures there that we could talk through and explain about the significance and the importance of Jesus and the cross. But there's some wonderful Hebrew words there. Um, You will probably read in your Bible that God will provide uh, for an offering a lamb or God will provide himself an offering the, the literal Hebrew says this God will provide for Himself an offering. The wonderful thing is that God has always provided for Himself an offering. The offering was never meant to be your offering, the, the sacrifice was never meant to be you or your son. God had always provided for Himself an offering, and, and, and Jesus, Jesus was that representation of God providing for Himself. Have you ever thought then that the cross was actually about dismantling our concepts of God? That what happened through Jesus was about changing our image of who God was. Now, see, the problem is if we're stuck in the old image, we're still in the other type of God image that says that God's only going to be kind to you if he can kill something... And in killing something, he'll stop being angry, and when he's not angry, he can be kind to you. And we get interesting thoughts that have been making some of your brains do somersaults with, like, for example, if if Jesus is the one who paid our debt to God, and then God forgives us because Jesus paid our debt, the truth is God hadn't forgiven you anything because there's nothing to forgive. If there's no debt, there's nothing to forgive. Forgiveness has to come when the debt is in place, right? I'm just messing with you. I'm stretching your mind because I want you to break out of some of these walls and these barriers. So what happened next was so pivotal in Abraham's experience of God that it inspired Abraham to give God another name. That's how pivotal it was. So here's Abraham, and suddenly he's realized something about God, and he's so excited about this revelation of God not the fact that he hasn't sacrificed his son, but the revelation of God because he's understood something about God in all of this that he gives God a new name and he says, I'm going to call him Jehovah Jireh or Yahweh Yireh, if you want the. The, the Hebrew version, which means the God who gives or the God who provides. You see, see, Abraham's thought was God is a God who takes and therefore I have to respond to his need to take in order for him to be happy with me. But God says, now this is where we change that mindset. You have to learn, you thought I was a God who takes. You were a God who, You thought I was a God who you have to give to me to get my smile upon you. But God says, okay, now I've got you to this point. Let me show you that I'm the God who gives to you. I'm the God who provides for you. So he called him by a new name because it reflected a new experience of God. That God is still the same. It fascinates me, the continuity of the Bible, because one of the favorite scriptures, in, particularly in in evangelical christian churches is john 3:16. for god so loved the world that he gave the god who gives the god who provides our question is too often what is it that god wants to take from me when the actual question is what is it that god wants to give to me that I for some reason have been closed off to, that for some reason I've been non-receptive. You see, the, the only appropriate response when you meet the real God is thank you. But to me, the most amazing fact to emerge from this story relates to the wider story around it. his whole story goes with this Abraham here's this voice on the wind go to a land and I'll show you I'll make of you a great nation he's no Bible to refer to he's no he's no apostolic succession or you know out of the mouths of two or three witnesses stuff or anything to go to It just it's the it's the raw authenticity of a human being encountering the real God of Jesus the divine the God of heaven the creator the Abba And somehow I think that sometimes having the Bible has has caused us a problem. Not that the Bible is a problem, but sometimes it's caused us a problem because our whole experience of God has not really been an experience of God. It's very often been an experience of the Bible. And so the Bible becomes God because we miss that raw interaction because remember that, that John and Luke and Matthew and Mark, and Peter, and James, and Jude, and Paul, didn't have the New Testament. We have it. They didn't have it. They wrote it. They didn't have it. They had some Hebrew scriptures that they had to wrestle with, and they had to wrestle with stuff like this to find the God. But you see, they weren't wedded to a series of writings. They were wedded to a real existing living persona, which was God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And, and I think sometimes our theology and our religion has, has, has moved us away from the freedom. To have that real personal encounter, that raw edge of meeting God. And so we meet the God who has been constructed for us, who we're supposed to meet in the way that we're supposed to meet Him. And then anybody that's not in that is out. So you see what begins to happen? Because that's what happened with the Pharisees. Here's the way God is, here's what God is like, this is where you have to meet Him. And anybody who doesn't do that is out. So Jesus was out. According to the Pharisees and teachers of the law, according to those who were experts on the scriptures, Jesus was out. Just saying. So what this story teaches is there is a raw edge where Beyond all that, and Scripture is good, and I'm a teacher of Scripture, and, and you could say I make my living from teaching Scripture, but beyond all that, there has to be this raw experience, which I talked about at the beginning, of the authenticity of the reality in our own life and the challenge, and then, and then the authenticity of the one who we call God that so often has become clouded in so many things. So the most amazing fact to emerge from this story for me relates to that here's Abraham, he, he hears the voice on the wind, he tries to obey God, he makes some mistakes, he, he, he pulls it back again, uh, God interrupts the conversation, he, he, he helps to save some people from a city, not as many as he wanted, but his heart was in the right place, and, uh, and then God's told him he's going to have a family that will come from him, and he's reached 100 years old, 99 years old, and He hasn't got a son that's come from his own body and his his wife's 90 and she's way past menopause, way, way past menopause. But God said, no, it's going to be Sarah. You're going to have the child. Sure enough, when he's 100 and Sarah's 90, boom, there's Isaac, a child, the child of promise, showing that out of what looks to be dead to us, what looks to be finished, what looks to be incapable of ever producing life, God says, this is me into what seems incapable of producing life. When you let me in this thing, life comes. See, that's what the resurrection's all about. God says, I've got to show you again that in a situation that you think is incapable of producing life, when I come along, the whole thing that death is gets gets removed. See, Isaac was already a representation of the God who provides, if Abraham had been bright enough to see it, because he couldn't have been there without that. And what I like about Abraham, he was as thick as you and I. Just this, you know, suddenly the God who provides when he's on Mount Moriah, but, but it's been going on all the time. Lots of stuff's been going on all the time. You've just been too dumb to see it. It's going on, and the God who gives and provides is still there, Still faithful. But here's, here's the most amazing fact that I wanted to share with you. Do you know what the name Isaac means? The name Isaac means laughter. Because when the angel came and said, no, Sarah, this postmenopausal, dried-up old lady, he's the one who's going to bring forth the child that I promised you. She, she laughed. Now you would, wouldn't you? Um, (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, the angel took it as being uh, that she was not being very welcoming to the news and uh, was perfectly entitled to do that. I'm not an angel. I don't know but they finished up, when Isaac came along, they called him um, "He laughs," or laughter." Now this is very significant because, you see, this amazing encounter with God shows that Abraham believed that the God who he thought existed was one who takes away laughter. He takes away joy. And all that his demands ever do is remove laughter from your life. But what he learned that day on that mountainside was this was not the God who takes away laughter from his subjects, but he's the one who gives it back to us, inviting us to share in his own laughter. I kinda see God on that day in heaven laughing. Because the outcome of this was so amazing to God because Abraham suddenly got the point. He suddenly began to see that this God who he had sought to follow and serve and be faithful to was not like any other God. And that this ungodlike God comes into Abraham's life to give laughter back to him, not to take laughter away from him. And it's that same Father I present to you. It's that same Abba. It's that same God. It's the one who gives. It's the one who provides. And he's the one who says, my deepest and most sincere desire is to give laughter back to you. And when you see him for who he is, that he is not demanding your sacrifice to make him happy, but he provides for himself and out of that provision gives you your laughter back, you can begin to rest easy and to settle and to know that this is our God. Yeah. This is our God. This is the divine. This is, this is the deity that we call Abba Father. And that's why Jesus, when he came presenting him, never sought to introduce a single person to God. Jesus was done with the God thing. You may not realize that. Read your Bible. Jesus never came to bring anybody to God. He said, I'm done with that God thing because that God thing puts an image in your mind that takes you away from who I am. So what did Jesus come to do? He came to reveal the Father. I am the Father I want. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And as I've said to you before, the only time he calls upon him as God is when hung on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In, the forsaken, in, in, in his inability to see God as Father, he felt forsakenness. I, I believe forsakenness comes when we lose our image of God as Father. But when we see God as Father, the forsakenness goes because he's the God who gives, he's the God who provides and he's the God who gives laughter back to us. That God tonight invites you into his life. I told you before, I was raised in, in, in good tradition. I was raised in, in kind tradition. I was raised in sincere tradition and and it did not harm me in some ways it harmed me in other ways but it was very sincere and I honor those who taught me it but one of the things I grew up believing was that I had to ask God and ask Jesus into my life somehow like I was the more powerful than God what I've learned and whether you agree with me or not this is where my heart is and what I believe that actually it's the other way around God invites us into his life Jesus invites us into His life. The Spirit invites us into His life, and all He asks of us is a willingness. I accept the invite, an RSVP, a thank you. I'll be there. That's all He asks of us. And so, you bow your heads just for one moment with me. I hope what we've said has been helpful to you. But if all it's been is helpful to you, I will be disappointed. I hope what it draws from you tonight is an RSVP. I hope what it draws from you tonight is an understanding of how much God loves you, of how his heart is towards you, of how much he wants to break the images that so often exist in our lives that give us a false impression of who he is, of how he wants to give laughter back to you. How do I respond to that? I accept the invitation. How do you accept the invitation? Well, it's really complex. You simply say, I accept. There's no clever words. There's no magic words. There's no magic formula. It's a simple heart thing that says, I accept your invitation for me to come into your life. I invite you to accept that invitation tonight. I invite you right now where you are to accept that invitation, God. Father, Jesus, Son, Holy Spirit, I I accept your invitation for me to come into your life. When you come into that life, that's when heaven begins to make its real existence within you right now. That's where you understand that forgiveness is not something that you earn or have to qualify for, forgiveness is something that's given regardless you begin to experience all it is that God has done for you, not what you have to do for God so if you made that prayer in your heart tonight, if you want to talk to me, I'm always hanging around here afterwards please, please do so but I know it's a reality and in the rawness of this experience, I want you to meet this God who Abraham met who on the mountain that day showed him the lesson, I'm not like that. Let him be who he is. So Father, we bless you. Thank you for the opportunity tonight to share these words from my heart and I trust from your heart. May they resonate in us and bring a change that lasts. As long as life goes on, as long as eternity goes on to make the difference in us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You've listened wonderfully. Appreciate you tonight. In uh, tonight in Pillars is a cheese night, so you're welcome.